from New York, this is Democracy Now! In five days, we've identified 51-year-old Mohammed Saeed as the person who perpetrated at least the two crimes on Rhode Island and Cornell Southeast. Our community has lost brothers, fathers, husbands, uncles, and beloved friends. In Albuquerque, New Mexico, police say they've arrested a primary suspect in the recent killings of four Muslim men. We'll get an update from Muslim community activist Samia Assad, who organized a memorial for the victims last night at the Islamic Center of New Mexico. Then the FBI recently raided properties in St. Louis, Missouri and St. Petersburg, Florida that are tied to the African People's Socialist Party, as this Justice Department indicts a Russian man who they accuse of using U.S. space groups to spread Russian propaganda. We'll speak with African People's Socialist Party founder, Amali Yeshitela, whose home was raided. They see in the African People's Socialist Party a vanguard for the struggle for the liberation of our people. They see that because not just what we do here in the United States, but because we had the temerity to do like Garvey, to do like Malcolm X, and take the struggle of black people around the world. Then the Biden administration says it's officially ending the contested Trump-era Remain in Mexico policy that forced tens of thousands of asylum seekers to wait in Mexico as their cases made their way through U.S. courts. Now that the injunction has been lifted and the Biden administration has expressed its intent to end the Remain in Mexico program, we demand that it do so immediately and in an orderly way without any delay to disenroll anyone who continues to be in Remain in Mexico out of that program and is able to face their immigration case from the United States. We'll speak with Efren Olivares of the Southern Poverty Law Center and get an update on children and parents he represented at the border after they were separated under Trump's zero-tolerance policy. He writes about them and his own story in My Boy Will Die of Sorrow, a memoir of immigration from the front lines. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Primaries were held Tuesday in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Vermont, and Connecticut. In Wisconsin, the millionaire construction magnate Tim Michaels won the Republican gubernatorial primary. He was endorsed by Donald Trump and defeated Rebecca Clayfish, who had the backing of former Vice President Mike Pence. Michaels will face Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers in November. If elected, Michaels has vowed to abolish the bipartisan Wisconsin Elections Commission. Meanwhile, Wisconsin Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes easily won the Democratic Senate primary after several of his opponents dropped out. Barnes would become Wisconsin's first black U.S. senator if he defeats Republican incumbent Ron Johnson in November. Mandela Barnes spoke at a victory rally in Milwaukee Tuesday night. And we will continue the fight for good-paying jobs that you can raise a family on. I'm here to tell you that together we will move forward to protect the rights of so many people, the fight that so many people have been involved in long before we got here, like the right to vote and the right and the right for you to make your own decisions about your own bodies.
In Minnesota, Congressmember Ilhan Omar has survived a primary challenge from former Minneapolis City Councilmember Don Samuels, who criticized Omar's calls to defund the police. In other news from Minnesota, Kim Crockett has won the Republican primary for Secretary of State, which oversees the elections. Crockett is an election denier who's called the 2020 election rigged. And in Vermont, Becca Balint won the Democratic primary for Vermont's sole congressional seat. Ballant, who is the leader of Vermont's state Senate, defeated Vermont's lieutenant governor, Molly Gray. Ballant had been endorsed by Senator Bernie Sanders. If she wins in November, Ballant will become the first woman and the first openly LGBTQ person to represent Vermont in Congress. Vermont Democrat Peter Welsh, who currently serves in the House, easily won the Democratic Senate primary in his bid to replace retiring Senator Patrick Leahy. Welch will face Republican Gerald Malloy in November. An attorney for former President Donald Trump says FBI agents took about a dozen boxes of material from Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate Monday while executing a search warrant. Few new details have emerged about the raid, as Republican lawmakers called on the FBI and Justice Department to publicly answer questions about the unprecedented raid. Trump is believed to be in possession of a list of what was taken from his property, but he has not made this public. According to multiple news organizations, the raid focused on recovering documents Trump illegally removed from the White House last year. On Tuesday, White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre said President Biden only learned about the raid from public reports. The Justice Department conducts investigations independently, and we leave any law enforcement matters to them. Uh, it would not be appropriate for us to comment on any ongoing investigations. This comes as Donald Trump is expected to be deposed today by lawyers from the office of New York Attorney General Letitia James as part of a probe into the Trump Organization's financial practices. Republican Congressmember Scott Perry says FBI agents seized his cell phone Tuesday morning while he was traveling with his family. Perry's the chair of the House Freedom Caucus, was a key backer of Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. He has so far refused to testify before the House January 6th committee investigating the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. In June, federal agents also seized the phone of attorney John Eastman, who had advised Trump on ways he could stay in office after losing the election. At least one person died after a series of large explosions Tuesday at a Russian military airbase in Crimea. Russia claims the explosions were caused by an accidental detonation of ammunition. Ukrainian officials have not publicly commented on the explosions, but an unnamed Ukrainian military official told The New York Times pro-Ukrainian forces were behind the blast. In an address on Tuesday night, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky did not discuss what happened at the Russian airbase, but he called for Crimea to be returned to Ukraine, Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. Secretary of State Tony Blinken's in Rwanda today after stops in the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Africa on a five-day trip in sub-Saharan Africa. Blinken's trip comes just weeks after Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov visited Egypt, Uganda, Ethiopia and the Republic of Congo. Some analysts say the two trips have echoes of the Cold War as Washington and Moscow attempt to increase their influence in Africa. While in South Africa, Blinken criticized Russia's invasion of 
of Ukraine. Earlier this year, South Africa joined many other African nations in abstaining from a United Nations vote condemning the invasion. During a press conference with Blinken, South Africa's foreign minister, Naledi Pandur, said she would like to see an end to the war, but criticized how international law is not fairly enforced. Uh, we believe that all principles that are germane to the United Nations Charter and international uh, humanitarian law must be upheld for all countries, not just some. Just as much as the people of Ukraine deserve their territory and freedom, the people of Palestine deserve their territory and freedom. Israeli forces killed two Palestinians Tuesday in the occupied West Bank, this according to the group Defense for Children. On Tuesday, Israeli forces shot dead 16-year-old Hussein Jamal Hussein Taha in Nablus. Then in the early evening, Israeli forces shot dead 16-year-old Momen Yassin Mohammed Jude Jaber, north of Hebron. This comes just days after Israel killed 16 children during three days of attacks on the Gaza Strip. In other news from the region, an Israeli bus company has apologized after a bus driver ordered 50 Palestinian workers off a bus near Tel Aviv last week. The driver ordered the Palestinians off the bus after three Jewish passengers got on and refused to travel with the Palestinians. The bus company claims one of the Jewish passengers threatened the driver and claimed he was a transport ministry official. In New Mexico, police have arrested a 51-year-old man named Mohammed Sayed, charged with murdering two Muslim men in Albuquerque. He's also a suspect in the killing of two other Muslim men. The four deaths have stunned the Muslim community in New Mexico. Police are still trying to determine a motive. In a news release, the department said a, quote, interpersonal conflict may have led to the shootings. We'll have more on this story after headlines. In Nebraska, a mother and her teenage daughter have been charged with felonies after the mother helped her daughter obtain a medication abortion. Authorities built their case in part on private Facebook messages between the mother and daughter, which were obtained through a warrant. Investigators also obtained the teenager's medical records. Authorities say the teenager, who was 17 at the time, broke the law by getting an abortion after 20 weeks. The mother and daughter are also accused of burning and burying the fetus. The teenager is being charged as an adult at the request of prosecutors. In California, a group of Asian-American residents have filed a class-action lawsuit against the sheriff and other officials in Siskiyou County in Northern California. The lawsuit accuses the officials of a, quote, sweeping campaign to harass and intimidate Hmong and other Asian-Americans. According to the lawsuit, 28 percent of drivers pulled over by the county last year were Asian-American, even though they make up just 2 percent of the county's adult population. The lawsuit also alleges Asian-Americans were 25 times more likely to be searched during traffic stops than white drivers. In other news from California, the Los Angeles City Council has voted to ban encampments for unhoused people near schools and daycare. The vote came after a dramatic meeting where two protesters were arrested as they denounced the council's vote. 
A jury in California has convicted a former worker at Twitter of spying for Saudi Arabia by providing the kingdom private information about Saudi dissidents. Prosecutors accused the man, Ahmad Abu Amo, of taking hundreds of thousands of dollars from a close aide to Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in exchange for information about certain Twitter account holders. One Saudi aid worker, Abdurrahman al-Sadan, who ran a satirical Twitter account, was later abducted by the secret Saudi police, tortured and sentenced to 20 years in prison. President Biden has signed a $280 billion package to support the U.S. semiconductor industry. I'm signing the law of the Chips and Science Act, a once-in-a-generation investment in America itself, a law that the American people can be proud of. The CHIPS Act will provide more than $76 billion in subsidies to corporations that produce semiconductor chips in the United States. Vermont's independent Senator Bernie Sanders opposed the bill, saying it's a form of corporate welfare for a handful of wealthy, high-tech companies. And in news from Mississippi, a grand jury has declined to indict Carolyn Bryant Dunham for her role in the lynching of Emmett Till nearly 70 years ago. Till was a 14-year-old black teenager who was brutally abducted, tortured and killed in Mississippi in 1955 after he allegedly whistled at Dunham, a white woman, who worked as a store clerk. Her husband and his half-brother were tried for Till's murder and acquitted by an all-white jury. Earlier this year, a team searching for evidence in the Emmett Till case found an unserved warrant charging Dunham in his kidnapping. On Tuesday, Emmett Till's cousin and best friend, the Reverend Wheeler Parker, Jr., responded to the news by saying, quote, The fact remains that the people who abducted, tortured and murdered Emmett did so in plain sight, and our American justice system was and continues to be set up in such a way that they could not be brought to justice for their heinous crimes, he said. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where police say they've arrested a primary suspect in the recent killings of four Muslim men in the city. The suspect is himself a Muslim man. This comes after the body of Naeem Hussein was found earlier this month, just hours after he attended the funerals of Pakistani immigrants Mohammed Afzal Hussein and Aftab Hussein at the Islamic Center of New Mexico. Those two were killed the week before in what police described as separate am- Bush-style shootings. A fourth South Asian Muslim man, Mohammed Ahmadi, was killed in November. Since the murders, many members of the Muslim community say they've been afraid to go outside. Albuquerque Police Deputy Commander Kyle Hartsock gave an update on the arrest at a news conference Tuesday afternoon. Back on July 26th of 22, uh, late at night, uh, Afab Hussein was found shot to death off Rhode Island Southeast. On August 1st, 22, again late at night, Mohammed Afzil Hussein was found dead, not too far away, off Cornell Southeast. 
Our homicide unit, as well as the crime scene team, started to notice some similarities between these two cases. With the help of the ATF's NIVIN program, we were able to relate the casings found on both these scenes that were likely fired from the same firearm. We quickly started looking at other cases that could be similar and identified that there might be a really active public threat, someone targeting a certain community for reasons unknown or certain persons for reasons unknown. Five days ago, we came to the public and asked you guys for help. Just five days ago. And in five days, we've identified 51-year-old Mohammed Saeed as the person who perpetrated at least the two crimes on Rhode Island and Cornell Southeast. We're continuing to investigate his involvement in the other crimes closely with the district attorney's office and the federal prosecutor's office. What we can tell you is a tip from the community is what helped us lead us to this subject and what helped us eventually find the car that we put out just two days ago to the public. Police say Mohammed Saeed is originally from Afghanistan and that a, quote, interpersonal conflict may have led to the shootings. Congressmember Melanie Stansbury, whose district includes Albuquerque, remembered one of the victims, Mohammed Afzal, who'd worked as a field organizer for her congressional campaign. Mohammed was kind, hopeful, optimistic, a city planner who believed in democracy and in social change and who believed that we could, in fact, build a brighter future for our communities and for our world. Our community has lost brothers, fathers, husbands, uncles, and beloved friends. Hundreds attended a memorial Tuesday night at the Islamic Center of New Mexico, Albuquerque's longest-standing and largest mosque, which at least three of the victims had attended. This is Ahmed Assad, president of the center. I mean, astonishment for the community. It's just—I can't put enough words to tell you how shocked we were um, and, and how, um, how much this community— has suffered as a result of the killings and how we just can't make heads or tails of it. We're still in a very uh, surreal time trying to make sense of the senseless killings that, uh, have, uh, that we've suffered. For more, we go to Albuquerque to speak with Ahmed Assad's sister, Samia Assad, human rights activist, organizer, who was host of the memorial at the Islamic Center of New Mexico last night. She's former board chair of the city of Albuquerque's Human Rights Board. Samia, we first met you when Democracy Now! covered the 2017 Women's March in Washington, D.C. You were part of the New Mexico delegation. Our deepest condolences to you and your community. You've said this has been one of the hardest weeks of your life. Can you tell us what you understand so far about these four murders and the arrest of the suspect yesterday, Mohammed Saeed? Good morning, Amy. Thamia. Yes, I do recall the, uh, uh, the 2017 interview. And, uh, yes, um, yesterday's uh, events uh, and happenings, the reports that we, get, we, um, the, we got from the APD and uh, city officials, uh, whereas exactly as you reported, there was no new, new additional information. Uh, needless to say, um, it was shocking to all of us. It, we had a sigh of relief that there was some, some kind of closure. Uh, community was in, in fear and uh, terrified. So um, we're still in shock, and we're still figuring out the details as we speak right now. 
And uh, Samir, I'd like to ask you, at the memorial last night, both the governor of New Mexico, Michelle Lujan Grisham, and the mayor of Albuquerque, Tim Keller, spoke. Uh, uh, how how are local officials, how have they been responding to these, these tragedies uh, in your community? They've been very helpful. They've been very uh, uh, available to the community, uh, ready to support us in any capacity. And, of course, uh, as you saw yesterday at the memorial, uh, their presence was extremely important to uplift the spirits of the community that has been devastated, quite frankly, by these losses. You knew the men. Um, Did you know all four of them? Can you tell us about them? I mean, you have the funeral on Friday of two of the men. And then right after that, one of the men who attended their funerals was gunned down. I knew the uh, two of the victims, uh, the uh, Hamadi Ahmadi, who was the store owner. I knew of him. I, uh, I had patroned his, his uh, market. He was a nice, nice gentleman. Uh, but, you know, Hamad um, Afsal, who was um, a friend of ours, uh, it was a devastating loss. He was just such a gentle, gentle soul. Uh, for me, as a community organizer, to have another Muslim man who was uh, deeply in touch with the needs of the community and was ready and, and it was doing the good work in civic engagement and, and, and engaging his community. He believed in a brighter future, and he was taken way too soon. Um, it's a tremendous loss for us. Uh, I, um, I was devastated, needless to say. I knew him throughout uh, organizing. My son who uh, was a uh, ASUNM senator at, at UNM, worked closely with him, uh, as Mohammed was also president of the Graduate uh, Student Association at, at UNM. So you can imagine um, the interactions that went on in the, in the community. This was very personal. This was close and near to all of us. So, yes, it rattled us. His loss was really hard on us, and, and, uh, uh, and it's a loss to the community. I wanted to turn to the Albuquerque police chief, Harold Medina, who vowed to increase the presence of police in the Muslim community. The Albuquerque Police Department will continue to be visible in the Muslim community in the days to come and throughout the weeks to ensure that they feel safe and that they have time to come back to a normal life. Are you concerned at all, now that they say they have the primary suspect, about the increased presence of police, it was also announced of FBI, uh, in the Muslim community of New Mexico? You know, surveillance in in, in a post-September world for the Muslim community is always a concern. But in this case, it was needed. uh, And I'm thankful uh, Chief Medina has actually— uh, reassured the Muslim community by safeguarding the community, and uh, it, we needed it. We it was such you know we're such a small community, three to four thousand uh, Muslims within the city of Albuquerque. Uh, to have this sequence uh, uh, a number of, of uh, uh, community members that have been murdered, uh, like I said, it. Uh, I think the community needed some some. Uh, some assistance from the the city in, in in really putting at ease 
many uh, of the Muslim community. You know, as a result of what what happened with the, with the, in the last week, which was a, a really really heavy week. Um, People were not leaving their homes. They were scared. They were not going. You know, people were. School starts today. People were afraid of of, of sending kids. We we need to go back to norm, uh, to norm to the normal of if there is what you know whatever normal we have, and uh, if the presence h- helps ease uh, all New Mexican Muslims and New Mexicans at large, if it helps put them at ease, then it serves a purpose. And I think at this day t- and age. Yes, it absolutely helps, uh, for sure, uh, put the community at ease. Yes, I was going to ask precisely about that, because initial fears uh, obviously were that these uh, horrific killings were uh, the result of some sort of uh, anti-Muslim hate uh, uh, crimes. Uh, when you hear the news that the uh, that the main uh, suspect or the person uh, 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 charged is part uh, a member of the Muslim community. Uh, how do you how do you deal with that? It was hard. It was really shocking. You know, I I, I was at home when I got the news, and um, I first uh, was really alleviated that we had, we had caught the suspect. But it felt like almost to me personally, it took me back to a September 11th moment where it's like, oh gosh, I really wanted to hide and hide under a rock, you know, kind of situation because it's it's devastating, it's shocking. We still can't. It's so surreal. We don't know what to to you know to make of it, right? We we never expected it to be from us, even though we were open to all scenarios, um, and and. You know, a lot of people were thinking it was a hate crime, and it was a common um, denominator in the conversation outside the community, uh, based on really um, uh, the, uh, the Islamophobia uh, attacks on uh, on the community across the nation. Uh, post September 11th, again, I mean, we've been targeted, and and a season, you know, election season nears. That is also a worry, and it's still a worry, right? But um, uh, with the the these uh, this perpetrator being Muslim, I just want to say it's not ex- you know violence is not exclusive to the Muslim community. It is it can happen in any community and it, it shouldn't be a judgment call on who we are and how we move forward. Um, is uh, we'll address all of um, how we unify the community and uh, that's exactly where we're, where we are and how. How we plan to move forward is really solidifying relationships, uh, and part of that was just the beginning with the with the uh, with the memorial yesterday is to bring it back to the base. We, you know, the community here in in, in Albuquerque, there is no difference. There, at the ICNM, I, all, all my life, it's always been a, a, a diverse group of ethnicities, uh, a diverse uh, group of uh, uh, of uh, religious uh, sects. We never had that divide, and we don't intend to have that divide. And um, and again, you know, as hard as it is, we're going to get through this. Samia Saad, again, all our condolences. Human rights activist, organizer in Albuquerque, member of the Islamic Center of New Mexico. 
Next up, the FBI recently raided properties in St. Louis, Missouri, and St. Petersburg, Florida, tied to the African People's Socialist Party, as the Justice Department indicts a Russian man who they accuse of using U.S. space groups to spread Russian propaganda. We'll speak with the African People's Socialist Party founder, Amali Eshetela, whose home was raided. We're going to St. Louis. Stay with us. The police become necessary in human society. Only at that juncture in human society where it is split between those who have and those who ain't got. I throw a Molotov cocktail at the precinct. You know how we think. Organize the hood under I Ching banners. Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas. FBI spying on us through the radio antennas. And I'm hitting cameras in the street like watching society. With no respect for the people's right to privacy. I take a slug for the cause like Huey P. While all you fake try to copy Master P. I want to be free to live. Able to have what I need to live. Bring the power back to the street where the people live. We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons. Dying over money and relying on religion for help. We do for self like ants in a colony. Organize the wealth into a socialist economy. A way of life based off the common needs. And all my comrades is ready. We just spreading the seed. Police state by the hip-hop duo Dead Prez, featuring the words of our next guest, Amali Yeshitela. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we turn to look at the FBI raiding several properties in late July in St. Louis, Missouri, and St. Petersburg, Florida, tied to the African People's Socialist Party, which leads the Uhuru movement, the Pan-Africanist group has been a longtime advocate for reparations for slavery, a vocal critic of U.S. foreign policy. The raids came as the Justice Department indicted a Russian man living overseas named Alexander Yanov, using U.S.-based groups to spread Russian propaganda. The groups were not named in the indictment, but reportedly include the African People's Socialist Party. One of the FBI raids targeted the home of Amali Eshetela, the founder of the African People's Socialist Party. He accused the FBI of targeting his group for their political work. He's joining us now from St. Louis. Amali, welcome back to Democracy Now! We actually spoke to you first in about a half a, about a quarter of a century ago in 1996 when democracy now just began can you though go back to the end of july and talk about what happened talk about that day of the raid where were you my wife and i were um, awake we were sitting at dining room table discussing how we're going to be moving for the day she uh, is responsible for, has organized a doula program to train African women, uh, young women, uh, uh, in becoming doulas. Uh, and this is in a city where, uh, in the first year of life, uh, enough black babies die uh, to fill uh, 15 kindergarten classes every year. So we, we were talking about that, and I literally actually was preparing to go to the gym and then uh, we heard this loud racket outside, this noise uh, from loudspeakers de demanding the, that the residents of this property should come out with our hands up <clears throat> and nothing in our hands. And, uh, and, and as, as this was being said, uh, 
uh, loud uh, flashbang grenades uh, were exploding uh, all around the house. And I was later to learn uh, in the back stairwell of the house. So uh, I asked her to allow me to leave first and to get on the phone to call people to let them know that we were being raided. And uh, she tried, but was unable to do it because they had jammed our phones. Uh, so I went down the stairwell, and uh, when I got uh, to the bottom of the stairwell, uh, these uh, laser dots uh, from uh, automatic weapons were bouncing off my chest, and uh, I heard these commands to move toward them, to toward the light. There was a large armored vehicle uh, in front of my house. There were uh, camouflage-clad uh, troopers, uh, FBI agents, and I don't know who else, uh, with flag jackets and uh, automatic weapons. My wife uh, followed me down, and on her way down, uh, a drone went past her head going up the stairwell into the house. Uh, so I went outside and uh, was uh, zip-tied um, on the, at the side of the house. Uh, there were, I don't know how many FBI agents there were, uh, but there were a lot of them and a lot of different vehicles. Uh, and my wife came downstairs. She was handcuffed behind her back, and I'm asking them why, what's, what's going on. Uh, they uh, said that uh, they had a search warrant uh, for, for my house, and I asked them to see the search warrant. And uh, they uh, conveniently didn't have it on them, uh, but it was somewhere uh, in the vicinity, and they'd get it. Uh, uh, we were uh, told to sit on the curb, which we didn't comply with. And they said, well, you can sit uh, in the back seat of the car. And we're saying, I don't want to sit anywhere. I want to leave. That uh, <clears throat> I don't even want you here. I don't want to be here with you. Uh, they said, uh, again, why, why are you here? Why are you uh, attacking this house? Uh, they took my cell phone. They said that they were there because later that morning, there was going to be an indictment uh, out of Tampa, Florida, against a Russian national. And should he ever come to the United States, he would be arrested. Uh, that somehow my name was involved in this indictment. Uh, and uh, so that was the basis they gave for, for the arrest. I didn't know it at the time. Uh, but uh, across town, and uh, uh, one of our offices was being attacked. This was an office of the African People's Solidarity Committee. Uh, and they used battering rams to go into that house, uh, into that center. Uh, and upstairs, uh, there were two residents. Uh, these were white people who uh, were also handcuffed uh, at gunpoint. <clears throat> they had already knocked out the windows <clears throat> in, in the house, in my house. They had, uh, they had uh, knocked the door, some doors loose from the hinges. Uh, they had come through the back stairwell, as I mentioned, they used flashbang grenades in the rear of my house, uh, plaster all over everything. Uh, and in St. Petersburg, Florida, 27 days after they had done uh, what appears to us now to have been a test run uh, with, uh, on July 2nd, uh, with uh, someone pulling into the parking lot in broad daylight and from his trunk, uh, trunk, car trunk, pulling us, uh, a military-grade flamethrower to torch the 15 by 25-foot red, black, and green flag that uh, was on this 50-foot flag flagpole. Uh, and, and this had occurred. FBI, Homeland Security, local police came out. Uh, they refused to charge the guy with anything except um, um, uh, some kind of misdemeanor mischief. Uh, they refused to characterize it as arson. 
And uh, so it's upon uh, trying to understand that uh, initially, um, clearly uh, suggested to us that it was not just some casual guy who just happened to have a flamethrower in, in his trunk uh, who didn't like us, who did this, but, uh, but that the state was somehow involved. And then 27 days later, as I mentioned, they would attack uh, that same building, uh, the same building, by the way, that you referenced, uh, where we came under attack in 1996 with 300 uh, local uh, county, state, uh, uh, and uh, federal uh, forces. Uh, so it's the same building, and this time they didn't say anything about Russians or indictments. In fact, nobody was arrested. They used all the tear gas at that time that they had in the city of St. Petersburg against us. So clearly, uh, you know, we've been targeted. They, they stole uh, cell phones. They stole laptops. They stole iPads. Uh, they stole uh, like something like 40 years of archives that we have in that building in St. Petersburg, Florida, of, our, of the history of our movement, of our party. Uh, and the struggle uh, there in St. Petersburg. And uh, they also uh, detained, they went to the residence of uh, Akilia Nai, who's a young woman who oversees uh, most of our uh, communications work. Uh, and <clears throat> they told her a lie that someone was breaking into her car to draw her outside of the house. And then at that time, they forced their way into her car uh, as she opened it to check the car. They stole her cell phone, and uh, she is one of those persons who's also a so-called unindicted co-conspirator, along with me, uh, Penny Hess, uh, uh, Jesse Neville. Uh, and uh, so, you know, we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Well, Mali, this is an astounding story. I mean, here we uh, the for those of us who are familiar with the radical movement in black and brown communities in the United States, the African People's Socialist Party has been in existence for more than 40 years. It's it, it's part of it arose out of the black community and is one of the few organizations that has consistently maintained a uh, an anti-capitalist and a socialist and internationalist perspective. And now suddenly you're being accused of being uh, uh, pawns of the of the Russian government. Can, uh, can, what can, what sense can you make of this uh, of this attack? I think that what we're experiencing, and by the way, this is uh, the fifth May was fifth years of existence for the African People's Socialist Party. But you're right. We came out of, I was a SNCC organizer, we came out of the whole civil rights movement. And I think that we're uh, uh, dealing with the fact that the United States is facing an existential crisis of sorts, the whole social system is, <clears throat> where it was this uncontested hegemon for the longest period of time. Uh, it is now uh, being perceived by much of the world, and I think rightly so, uh, as a force that's losing its grip uh, on the world. And, you know, having suffered military defeat in Afghanistan, having suffered humiliation uh, in Saudi Arabia, that uh, the, the country that uh, Biden had to said he was going to turn into some kind of pariah and then have him to find himself slinking over, uh, slithering over, I should say, fist bumping uh, the prince. Uh, I just think it's an existential crisis, and the African People's Socialist Party 
uh, I want to invite you uh, and, and all of your listeners to come and see the work that we're doing in St. Louis. We've transformed an entire most oppressed African community. When they came to get us uh, at our house, uh, they came to Redbud, 44 Bud, as it's referred to. It's the most depressed, uh, economically depressed, uh, uh, politically neglected uh, uh, place in St. Louis. And we've transformed uh, uh, much of that. Uh, our party has done in pulling the people into actual uh, active uh, political work to, to change that community. We brought basketball courts where there were none. We built it ourselves. No city government, no help. We've initiated a doula program where 20 young African women uh, have just recently, even as we were being uh, attacked, this was happening there. We've, we've created uh, uh, um, uh, uh, programs that for African men and women who are leaving prison, the workforce program, the opening, uh, we bought properties where we uh, opening a bakery cafe uh, to train uh, people coming out of prisons and culinary arts and things like this. We bought properties to house them once they get out. So uh, this it's our work. And and when I say it's our work, I mean, the work we've been doing for, for 50 years as a party and that I've been doing for nearly 60 years is about the liberation of black people. I want to be clear on that. And the government is clear on that. They use Russia. They use uh, this nonsense, uh, even at a time where we've seen white people scaling the walls of the Capitol, threatening to kill the vice president, the feet on the on the desk of Nancy Pelosi. And you talk about we have some role under the Russians of contaminating the pristine elections that happen in this country. And I'm right now in a state where the guy who's running for Senate uh, one of his most uh, controversial, if you will, campaign advertisements or uh, uh, videos uh, has him smashing through a door, just like the FBI smashed through our doors, uh, uh, having uh, with camouflage, carrying people, flashbang grenades and him stepping in with an automatic weapon saying that he's going rhino hunting. We in the African People's Socialist Party are contaminating and undermining elections in this country. We are responsible for uh, discrediting the United States uh, around the world. This is the most ridiculous, asinine issue. But we, the African People's Socialist Party, we are busy all over the world. We have actual political organizations in South Africa, throughout the Caribbean, in West Africa. We are there uh, uh, in in the slums, in in, in places like Everton uh, uh, Township, uh, in Houtung in, in South Africa and various places like that. So, so we are a problem. Uh, we are throughout the Caribbean as organization. And uh, the United States has identified, uh, obviously, three strategic enemies. And one of them clearly uh, is Russia. The other is China that is dealing with right now. Very dangerous, very tense, uh, uh, serious situation. And Africa is one. That's why they got for the first time in the 246-year history of the United States Marines, they've created, they put forth their first uh, four-star black general. And they've given him the job of presiding over Africa Command, the uh, the organization from the United States military to control, contain Africa uh, that finds itself, uh, it says, in a contest with Russia and China in Africa, and of course with black people in Africa. That's why you have 
the first uh, black uh, secretary of uh, defense, they called him, uh, in his history. So Africa is, a, is, a, is an enemy. And black people, if you remember, 1969, the FBI declared that the Black Panther Party uh, was the greatest threat to the internal security of the United States. And it was an organization dealing in international affairs, and it didn't have the kind of organizational presence that we have throughout the African world. So that's why we came under attack. It's an attack on the right of black people. It's an attack on, on our struggle uh, for the absolute total uh, liberation of all, every inch, square inch of Africa and its unification along with the African peoples around the world in solidarity with oppressed and colonized people elsewhere. And Omali, you mentioned that, that uh, Russia identified as a, a, a prime enemy of the United States. Uh, what do you know about this guy, Alexander Ionov, the one who supposedly you are unindicted co-conspirators with, and, and these allegations that he's been spawning, he and others have been spawning uh, dissident movements within the United States? You know, I don't know uh, if the Russians are spawning dissident movements in the United States. I just know the African People's Socialist Party, as you mentioned earlier, we're 50, we 50 years old. We're on the same trajectory we've always been. And I find it extremely problematic for this suggestion that somehow uh, the Russians, we needed the Russians to tell us. You know, it's, it fits into the whole narrative about colonized people and black people being too stupid to see our own future and control our own affairs, that we need somebody to come and tell us that, that, that America's treating us bad. George Floyd didn't happen. It wasn't the murder of Mike Brown uh, that brought uh, the African People's Socialist Party into Ferguson, St. Louis, that somehow the Russians had something to do with this asinine. And I, I, there's some things I will not talk about just in terms of still pulling together uh, legal forces to deal with this because they've stolen. So the people mentioned uh, and they mentioned that they took laptops and cell phones uh, and and other devices like that. But they took a lot more. They took years and years of communications with various people that we've had around the world and throughout this country. They've got texts. They've got emails. They've constructing uh, some narrative that will defend what it is they've done. They've created they created a political Fence against us, and then they're using the law. They're constructing uh, a, a case using the law uh, to punish us for for what they uh, cannot characterize as a political crime. And the political criminal in this instance is the United States government. So I won't say too much, you know, uh, about that aspect of it, except to say that it's a bogus charge. It's a ridiculous charge. And anybody can see our history. Uh, this, they, there's a assumption that somehow somebody paid us to say something about, about uh, genocide against African people. 1950s, black people went to the United Nations charging genocide. 1982, we held a, con a, a first tribunal that ever happened in the world on reparations of black people in this country, a world tribunal with international jurors playing, playing a role in this. And we based it on international law. And and one of the uh, uh, the international law, one aspect of that was the uh, the UN Convention on the Punishment of uh, Prevention Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. We did that, and and uh, this was at a time that the United States had not even uh, ratified uh, Amali, the Genocide Convention. Amali, just to be clear, you haven't been charged with anything, right? I mean, they raided your house, they <laughs> handcuffed you and your wife, um, they used flashbang grenades, but you weren't charged with anything. We haven't charged, been charged yet. Uh, I, I, we expect uh, indictment. 
We expect uh, also an attempt to separate uh, people from these incredible programs that we've been doing. And but much of this has been, by the way, uh, facilitated by white people who voluntarily pay reparations to the African community through us. I mean, we have 130 some odd organization organizers and uh, that is to say 130 cities uh, that this white organization and our leadership is functioning in 30 states. So they haven't charged us yet. Uh, but that's the thing hanging over our heads. And we are convinced that part of this also uh, is to represent threat, terrorize people. You can't communicate with us because the FBI is going to get your information and to keep people from pro- uh, supporting the programs that we're doing. And now we have to spend money uh, buying uh, communications uh, capacity, you know, videos and, 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 and laptops and things like that. And to get lawyers. Because uh, this thing about unindicted co-conspirators is, provides them an opportunity anytime they want to, uh, to, uh, to file these charges. And we expect indictments to come. And we expect, you, uh, yeah, if you ahead. wouldn't mind your age, Amali? I'm 80. I'll be 80. I'm 81. I'll be 81 in October. We just have 30 seconds, but can you respond to the raid on Mar-a-Lago? Some of your um, properties in St. Petersburg were also raided, also in Florida. Yeah, I, I haven't heard a single uh, anything about a flashbang grenade going off at Trump's place. I haven't heard any flashbang grenades going off and any of those people climbing the walls of the Capitol. And the fact is that uh, the FBI is being used as political instruments, and certainly that's happened with us. And I can't speak to uh, the, the former president of the United States except to say that there's an obvious contest that's happening, happening between different sectors of the colonial ruling class in this country. And they would, if they could, lump us into their beef, their struggle. But uh, we are fighting for the liberation of black people, the unification, liberation of Africa, and well, we ain't going to stop. Amalia Hello, we want to thank you for being with us, chairman of the African People's Socialist Party, uh, located in St. Louis, Missouri, set up there um, after, well, it was eight years ago yesterday when Michael Brown was killed by police. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. When we come back, an update on how the Biden administration says it's officially ending the Trump era remain in Mexico policy. Also, how many children are still separated from their parents, separated by the Trump administration? Stay with us. by Martha and the Vandellas. It's one of the many Motown classics co-written by the legendary Lamont Dozier, who died Monday at the age of 81. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. The Biden administration said Monday it's officially ending the controversial Trump era remain in policy, um, remain in Mexico policy, and will no longer force asylum seekers to wait in Mexico while their cases are resolved in U.S. courts over months and years. The announcement came just 
hours after a judge lifted an injunction in effect since December, blocking Biden officials from terminating the program, formerly known as the MPP, the Migrant Protection Protocols. The Supreme Court ruled in June the Biden administration had the authority to end the policy. Some 70,000 asylum seekers were subjected to MPP from January 2019 to January 2021, when President Biden suspended the policy, fulfilling a campaign promise. But a federal court in Texas last December ordered the administration to restart the program after legal challenges from Texas and Missouri. Since then, nearly 6,000 more asylum seekers were enrolled in MPP. Most have been forced to live in squalid makeshift border camps. Others found shelter in towns near the U.S.-Mexico border. This is an asylum seeker from Nicaragua who was living at a border camp in Matamoros, Mexico, in 2020. I know this is not the ideal place for any child or any teenager, but while we're here, we're doing our best to save them from mental health problems. Sometimes the sadness is overwhelming, but you have to stay strong. I want my granddaughters to have a better future. Well, for more, we're joined by Efren Olivares, the deputy legal director at the Southern Poverty Law Center's Immigrant Justice Project, formerly with the Texas Civil Rights Project in South Texas, where we met him. His new book is My Boy Will Die of Sorrow a memoir of immigration from the front lines. Um, Efren, welcome back to the Democracy Now! If you can talk about the significance of the end of MPP, and then we want to ask you about the separation of children and how many are still separated. Hi, Amy. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, the end of MPP or Remain in Mexico is a long time coming. We were pleased to see that the administration suspended the program. Uh, right at the beginning of, of the Biden administration. Unfortunately, litigation and the courts got in the way and had prevented it from fully winding down the program. And in fact, the administration was forced to enroll additional people in MPP. Now that the Supreme Court has ruled and that the district court has dissolved the injunction, there's nothing stopping the Biden administration from promptly and orderly disenrolling everyone who is in MPP and allowing them to face their asylum cases or immigration proceedings from the United States, where they will have access to counsel, the ability to, you know, gather evidence, present that evidence, and everything that comes with with uh, presenting an immigration or asylum case. And Efren, you have you worked uh, on uh, legally on behalf of many immigrant families that were separated under the zero tier uh, zero tolerance policy of uh, uh, former President Trump. What's the status with those separated uh, families today? Well, it's uh, it varies. There's a lot of situations. Some families have been reunited. Many are litigating their cases against the government as a result of that policy, which remarkably the Biden administration is defending in court. There are dozens of lawsuits still ongoing, and the Biden administration is defending Trump policies and Trump administration officials. And some families, unfortunately, are still separated. Some some children who were taken from their parents are still in the U.S either with relatives or, you know, in the foster care system. And some parents who were deported to, to their home countries have not been located. So not every family has been reunited, reunited, excuse me, and some never will, unfortunately. 
And also the Biden administration is still enforcing the uh, Title 42 pandemic policy uh, and um, nearly two million asylum seekers were expelled without uh, due process as a result of Title 42. Uh, What do you see uh, happening uh, uh, with that policy in the future? Well, now the CDC and a host of scientists and public health experts have confirmed that there's no public health justification for Title 42 expulsions. Uh, Unfortunately, the ending of Title 42 of that practice of expelling immigrants and asylum seekers has also been stopped in litigation. Uh, The administration has said multiple times that it intends to end that policy, but the courts have prevented it from doing so. We were pleased to see that in Congress there was no codification of Title 42. So as the administration continues to litigate that against uh, Texas and other other states, we look forward to having a science-based policy around immigrant uh, around the pandemic, as well as a common sense immigration and asylum policy, so that those seeking safety in this country have an orderly way to do so. I wanted to go to a clip. I mean, as you've said, you represented many of the separated families at the border and have spoken about this over the years on Democracy Now!, as you write about in your new book, My Boy Will Die of Sorrow, a memoir of immigration from the front lines. This is what you write about a day in 2018 in McAllen, Texas. You said, I came back to the Benson Tower, standing outside, not on the corner of 17th and Austin Streets. I waited as the reporter set up the camera. Renee Feltz, with Democracy Now!, had traveled from New York City to McAllen to cover the separations. She was the first reporter who reached out to us about the brewing crisis. And we saw this as an opportunity to break the story to a wider audience, which was not yet aware of what we were seeing and hearing in court every day. Let's go to Renee's interview uh, in 2018 outside that federal courthouse in McAllen, a geo group private prison transport bus backed up uh, behind you. These are the buses in which the immigrants, many of whom are parents who have had their children taken away, are transported to and from the courthouse, probably to a CBP detention facility. The sad thing is that many of those people have children, and many of them were separated this morning before they came to court and were led to believe that when they return to the detention facility, their children are going to be there. But we know that the children will not be there because the government is separating them. So it may surprise some to know, Efren Olivares, that um, some 1,000 children are still separated at this point. I believe when the Biden administration came in, they put Dr. Jill Biden, President Biden's wife, the first lady, overall in charge of reunification. Um, If you can talk about the effect, in the book, you also write about your own experience so many years ago being separated from your family. Yes, I, you know, that interview that you played, it was before this crisis had made national news and we were struggling to break through and make sure that the public knew what was really happening at the border. And one of the saddest things is that we will probably never know how many families were actually separated, given the government's intentional lack of record keeping. We will not know. Many families were separated and the children ended up at a shelter, but the shelter never knew that that child had been traveling with a family, with a parent or a father or a mother, because there was no record keeping. And if the children were too little to be able to explain that, we will never know truly how many children were separated. 
And the as far as the lifelong consequences of that, you know, there, there's been widespread reporting on the trauma that that experience, the violent ripping apart and, and of, of a child from his or her mom or her dad. And, you know, just thinking of that audio that leaked, if that doesn't convey what this policy caused to children and to parents, it is still hard to understand how in this country in 2018 and ongoing, it was possible to see such a cruel violation of human rights against children. And Everno Levadis, we're going to do a post-show interview with you, post online at democracynow.org, to hear about your own life experience as you write about in your book, um, your book, My Bo Boy Will Die of Sorrow, a memoir of immigration from the front lines. Everno Levadis, deputy legal director now at the Southern Poverty Law Center's Immigrant Justice Project. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Stay safe.